Hi, folks. This is Gamers with Glasses, and we're here for a special episode of the Gamers with Glasses show, a spoiler cast on Remedy's game, Control. I'm joined today by John Ferrari. John, say hi. Hello. And Brian Reject. Hello. And just to put the warning up front, this is a spoiler-filled podcast. If you have not played the game yet and are worried about getting spoiled, walk away. Go play the game. You'll have more fun anyways. Um, maybe. So we're here to talk about the 2019 game Control, which you know was some site's game of the year. I think Game Informer and even IGN had it as a game of the year. Uh, and it's a really interesting game that is a third-person shooter, but also experiments with all kinds of interesting things that we'll talk about in terms of weird fiction or the new weird. Uh, if folks haven't heard of Remedy Entertainment before, they're most responsible or most known for their games, uh, the Max Payne series um, from 2001 to 2003, uh, Alan Wake in 2010, Quantum Break in 2016, and then of course Control in 2019, as well as its DLC in 2020. So I thought we could start off uh, by talking about our experiences with Remedy Games and with Control. So maybe John, you can start us off and just tell us a little bit about you know, your experience with Remedy Games. My experience with Remedy Games is incredibly brief and almost entirely limited to this control experience. I uh, rented Max Payne or probably got a demo disc uh, way back when, when magazines were still a thing, as were demo discs. Um, I was impressed with the sort of time skewing mechanics, especially following right on the heels of The Matrix. It felt very timely. Um, but it was never a game that really grabbed me. Uh, Alan Wake, when it came out in 2010, uh, I was starting a new career. And so I saw it and I was really interested in it, but it just never uh, was enough to uh, break through the sort of big life change I was going through at the time. Uh, and I never went back to it. But everything I've heard is, sounds like a game that would be right up my alley. Uh, Quantum Break is another one where I just, my first child was born. I didn't have time for whatever reason. Me How and Remedy just, uh, yeah, I know, right? I'm just trying to be a father. Uh, for whatever reason, Remedy Games and I have just been ships in the night and Control, when it came out, I was uh, really grabbed by the concept. I'm really obsessed with sort of MK MKUltra, uh, the history of that program, um, along with the sort of un collective unconsciousness, the sort of Western hermetic mysticism that it seemed to really be tapping into. And yeah, as soon as it came out, it was a game that I uh, grabbed for PS4, right? And then when it was uh, announced as the free game for uh, PS Plus, I was, for first first hour I could download it, it was, it was right there on my PS5. So um, yes, I'm really happy with the the experience overall. And I, I definitely will, I think maybe at least go back and watch some playthroughs of their previous games. Nice. Thanks, John. What about you, Brian? Yeah, I mean, you're so a Max I'm, Payne aficionado. I am a bit of a, a Max Payne aficionado. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've always, I loved the, the first two Max Payne games when they came out. Uh, the third one, a little less so, but you know, I still enjoyed that that franchise um, that one's the one that was made by rockstar right the third exactly. one. exactly 
Yeah, yeah, and it, 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 I mean, clearly there's a there's a marked difference between the first two and the third uh, in all sorts of ways. Uh, but yeah, so I I I loved the uh, the Max Payne games, and uh, as a result, when Alan Wake came out, I was excited for that too, um, and I I enjoyed that one uh, also. I mean, I think it's I feel like. Remedy Games and I are our kindred spirits uh, because, like, they went from Max Payne, this franchise that I loved, to Alan Wake, which is all like Stephen King, and I loved Stephen King when I was a kid. So they um, they seem to do things that are are well suited for me. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Although I never did actually play Quantum Break because uh, I never had a Xbox One; it was an exclusive. And um, yeah, so I was glad I was able to get control and, and play that when it first came out. And I've just been getting into the DLC uh, just this week. So uh, yeah, I've got more, more ahead of me with Foundation and AWE, the two uh, expansions that have come out. You enjoying those, those fast moving hiss with pickaxes? <laughs> so I'll confess, I... I mean, I'm sure we'll we'll get into this talking about difficulty and whatnot, but I I forgot like this this game's pretty tough at times. Yeah, <laughs> and so since I wanted to get through and progress uh, a fair amount without worrying about difficulty before this conversation, I did uh, turn on some some assists. Uh, <laughs> I have I have a theory about difficulty that I came up with, but we'll talk about yeah. that later about why okay. this game is difficult because I I think it's difficult because it seduces you into playing the way that you shouldn't. But I'll talk more about that <laughs> in a bit. Um, yeah. So I've I've played most of Remedy's games, uh, although I feel like I've played all three Max Payne games, but never finished any of them, and not for want of enjoyment. Like I, I've enjoyed them all. Uh, you know, have them now on PC as well. So I'm sort of looking to revisit them at some point. But I never finished them. Uh, Alan Awake, I finished. Uh, I think pulled along for some of the same reasons as you, Brian, that sort of uh, youthful love of Stephen King. Uh, yeah. The sort of postmodern meta element of it also caught me. Um, I have to admit that as cheesy as it can sometimes be, I do love Remedy's signature protagonist talking to themselves thing. You know, I think oh, that's their sort of their signature move is the protagonists are always just talking to themselves, <laughs> um, which you don't see in a ton of games, at least not to the same extent, I suppose. Um, I play a little bit of Quantum Break this week because we're going to be doing this podcast. I don't know if I'll continue on. Uh, I've got to say that I think and I'll talk about this later, they corrected and reacted to some of maybe the pitfalls of Quantum Break, which for folks that don't know, Quantum Break is this game where you play a chunk of it and then you watch like a 25 to half hour long, basically television episode that's partially based on what you've just done. So there's kind of like a choose your own adventure part, but the rhythm of just stopping and watching a half hour show after you've just been playing uh, is weird a little weird um even when lance reddick is in it who i love lance reddick uh and what's his name from uh, game of thrones the uh one with the irish accent uh in any case uh 
And then, yeah, Control. I just replayed Control. Uh, I played it when it first came out. I think probably for a lot of the same reasons as you guys, just sort of clicked all the right things, you know, checked all the right boxes, uh, including the interest in the paranormal, the sort of Twin Peaksy vibes and things like that. And uh, here we are, here we are. So why don't we start by maybe talking a little bit about the story of Control, which begins, you know, sort of classic in media res, you are Jesse Faden, uh, you know, Remedy's first female protagonist, actually. Uh, and you walk into this with obviously some kind of governmental bureau. Uh, and right away, you get this kind of panning shot of the institutional quality of the architecture. And it pans down and you see the logo of the Federal Bureau of Control. And she just kind of walks in, you know, she kind of walks in, something's weird's going on. She goes to the director's office. The director has committed suicide uh, with a gun that is on the ground next to him. And you go and you pick up the gun basically and you become the next director. And it turns out what's happened is that the building's been taken over by these creatures that Jesse ends up dubbing the Hiss uh, and the name sticks, I guess, for the staff. And your job basically is to clear out these hiss, these uh, creatures that are essentially taking over the staff, the agents of the Federal Bureau of Control. Uh, and so you're essentially expelling them from the bodies and which mostly just takes the form of shooting, to be honest. I think there's a moment at the beginning where you kind of perform an exorcism and it doesn't work out. So you're just like, ah, we're just gonna shoot them. Uh, maybe we can talk about the limits of uh, gun-based gameplay at some point, uh, as fun as it is. And then... I think it's important to point out that everybody around you is like, oh, you should just shoot them. And then Jesse is the one who suggests, maybe I should try an exorcism and it doesn't work. And she's like, I guess we're shooting. Um, the Yeah, all the control agents were immediately went to just shoot them. And the only non-government agent attempted a peaceful out attempt fa and failed at a peaceful solution. It's funny too, because it's like, is this actually what would happen? Well, you start reading all the materials that you can gather in various places, all the lore documents, and you realize that probably is what they would do, right? Like a lot of documents are actually about them just getting rid of agents, you know? Like this agent has been infected by this paranormal thing, so gonna have to flush him, you know? Or this agent, you know, has been possessed by this. Oh, well, what do we tell his parent? you know, his family? As little as possible. And I'm sure we're going to get into this, but even the uh, ancillary uh, documents point to just a, a real gross negligence in terms of a workplace environment, even passively when they're not trying to be actively uh, dictatorial. Just, it's, a, it's not OSHA approved. Like the, the very existence of this office is an unsafe work environment and, and really negligent. So yeah, even even when they're not actively uh, trying to dis, uh, get rid of their agents, they are passively doing it through negligence. There, there's a vibe in this game of like, what if Fox Mulder got to take over the FBI? You know, <laughs> like instead of just being in the basement. And the thing is, you want your Fox Mulders around. You don't want them in charge. You really don't. Um, but so it goes on, and I think, you know, one of the most interesting aspects of the game is that you actually don't know why Jesse is there, despite the fact that you're playing 
this character. You don't know why she's there until about maybe a third of the way or so into the game where you find out she's looking for her brother and that what is called an altered world event occurred in her aptly named town, uh, Ordinary. And that in this process, they recovered her brother and which means they basically locked her brother up as somebody who had been affected by this altered world event, which it turns out is that they found this projector, uh, an object of power that actually, instead of just projecting images, is actually projecting alternative universes or worlds with creepy things that end up killing all of the parents in town and only the children are left and brutal things happen to them, Lord of the Flies style. And then the Federal Bureau of Control intervenes and Jesse gets away but her brother Dylan is taken into the bureau and you find out that he is actually being considered as a possible candidate to take over the directorship uh, when the director uh, eventually passes away or eventually goes away for some reason, retires perhaps. It doesn't seem like anybody actually retires from the Federal Bureau of Control. You just go mad or something. Um, and as the game proceeds, you are finding out what's happened to your brother. You're finding out what's happened to the projector. You're also finding out why the hiss got in, which maybe we can get into a little bit later. Uh, and you're getting to see Jesse Faden become a badass, basically. One of my favorite moments in the game, a moment I'm sure we'll come back to, that end of the ashtray maze moment, um, where there's this great musical sequence. But the end of it happens. And what does Jesse say? That was awesome. <laughs> and so you get the sense of a character who's actually like enjoying this, despite the fact that they're being surrounded. You get the sense almost that like, she's kind of you as well as you being her. She's kind of playing a game as well and just letting herself enjoy this thing. Yeah, it's the Keanu Reeves, I know Kung Fu moment from the matrix where he stops totally. being concerned and is like i know kung fu and that's awesome yeah i mean just short of her saying whoa uh which this is a much a much better game than the game keanu reeves recently appeared in uh just as a side note so um cyberpunk 2077 uh even when that's fixed this will still be a better game just my perspective uh but in any case side note all right, uh, so let's get into it. We can come back, we can loop back to the story, but let's get into this game. What strikes your fancy about this game? We're all people I think that really like this game, but what grabs you? Like what makes this game for you? So I actually, you know, you're speaking of that moment with the, uh, that was awesome. And I think one of the things I like about this game and Remedy games in general is their sense of humor there's always this uh, uh, sort of knowing, sometimes very meta approach to uh, the, the narrative world, to the fact that you're um, playing a video game. There's always like different genres that uh, you're bumping up against and making jokes about like in the Max Payne games, you watch a TV show about a character named Dick Justice. And uh, there's a, then a, a yeah, there, there's like all these other connections to the sort of noir world that Max Payne is playing with. So even though it's a very dark game that begins with the characters like uh, family getting murdered and 
Control is also a dark game with like the government conspiracy aspects and this whole town of ordinary Wisconsin being uh, eliminated, basically. Like there are these moments where you're always reminded like you're in this fictional playful world. Um, and I think that one with Jesse at the end of the ashtray maze is a, a good instance of that. But there's all sorts of little moments of play and fun and humor too, so. I get a real Dale Cooper vibe, you know, real Twin Absolutely. Peaks vibe. Oh, of yeah. the, there's like a campy quality to a lot of their games and a willingness not just to wink, but to like really lean into the camp and, you know, just kind of acknowledge that this is a weird situation. You know, there's a moment in the game where you can find a room that's filled with yellow post-it notes Uh which may or may not be replicating uh, and a note about how those yellow post-it notes are driving the person who inhabits that office crazy. There's another note actually roughly in the same area where a bathroom has gone missing from like the executive area. And the person's like, I didn't get promoted, you know, to get to this site in the organization just to have my executive bathroom disappear because the building uh, is constantly rearranging itself and the building we should say in many ways is you know the other main character of this game besides jesse the building is called the old house and seems to be a building that pre-exists at being an office building uh but does rearrange itself and seems to kind of retailer itself somewhat to the agency's needs but also somewhat maybe to its own needs and at some point we should talk about ati the janitor who seems to actually be the person in charge yeah, what about you, John? Yeah, uh, a lot of similar things. I think the thing that really that originally drew me to the game was that was the um, overall content. Like I said before, I'm, I'm uh, I read anything truthful, fictional, non-fictional, speculative about M the MK Ultra program, and I know that that was a big influence for them. But once I actually started playing the game, the thing that continued to draw me, um, and I'm going to precursor this by saying that it took me about four times, five times of actually engaging with this game before I was able to make it past, I think, probably the first eighth of the game, just because uh, of my own situation, being a father, getting called away often enough, this game is very difficult to be played um, episodically. Like it, it really does not lend itself to 15 minute, 20 minute uh, engagement situations. Um, Great. But uh, once I was able to kind of carve out that time and spend it with it, uh, and uh, the thing I really enjoyed was Remedy's understanding of the content they were, they were putting out. So in terms, they knew uh, the oldest house, uh, to be clear, is uh, firmly a brutalist uh, concrete structure in terms of design. And I think any game company could have looked at some brutalist architecture and presented something in the brutalist style. I don't know that anybody, every studio would have understood what makes brutalism both compelling and overwhelming. And this game was just not going to work if they didn't understand those elements. Uh, I think they also really understand um, how How do I put this? They understand the the collision between the weird and the banal. That at the end of the day, 
if you're going to present something that is a workspace that you have to show that it's a workspace and no matter how weird that workplace is, no matter how uh, tense and intense, like people are people and it's going to have the same dumb workplace problems and complaints and politics that any other workplace would have. So even if you're in a, a building in the astral plane, trying to lock down reality you're still going to complain that like the baseball team didn't do well this year like what are we doing like they do a great job of understanding that to make something feel lived in you also have to make it seem ridiculous in all the familiar ways um and yeah they just they they give these all these little easter eggs like i really connected that uh the post-it note room with the short story the yellow wallpaper like it, it's literally yellow wallpaper driving somebody mad and it's just a little it's a little hint and it's a deep cut but this game is full of really deep cuts that they don't feel the need to dwell on they don't feel the need to like really point to and say look how clever we are like a lot of companies do and i, I love when creators do something winky or easter eggy and then they don't pound you over the head with it to, to let you know that it's there and this game is chock full of it my favorite i knew i was gonna love this game when the opening cutscene. i guess it's not the opening cutscene. it's after you become the director there is a title sequence i would say um and on they they show an, an empty office uh and they zoom in on a desk and you're, you're meant to be looking at all the documents on the desk, but just politely over to the corner, there is a Crowley uh, uh, unicursive hexagram made out of paper clips, just sitting off to the side. They never point to it. It's never centered in the frame, but it's there. And then it's again, mirrored in the symbol of control, like the upside down black pyramid when combined with the reverse of the great seal of the United States form and, uh, as above, so below, uh, hexagram. <laughs> they never point to it. They never. They never show it. But it's it's there. And if you know it, it's great. And it makes the game feel realistic. It makes it feel like there's history there. And yeah, I just loved it. I just love going to each room and feeling like, oh, they considered everything about this play space. They, you go into the bathrooms. There's no mirrors. There's no mirrors. I believe in at any of the rooms I've been in, there's no, there's no reflective surfaces. Um, and they never really point to it, but it makes complete sense when you consider uh, that this is all a game about images and identities and uh, uh, symbols. And yeah, they, they little things like rather than the bathrooms having mops, they have brooms, which is just, it, it's never something that you're going to, take as oh that doesn't belong there but it's the thing that pings the back of your head where that doesn't belong there like i've never seen a bathroom with a broom in it um but it distinctly has a broom and not a mop and, and when you know there are mops you one of the main characters is constantly mopping but he is the only person with a mop and i think one of the only people that actually interacts directly with water so um yeah i just love all i love the detail that they put in and then never actually walk you through like you could ignore all of it and just shoot everything in this game and zip around and not engage with any of it really. And it could all fly over your head. You could have a great experience or you could spend four hours in the first area, just dissecting everything. And it's fabulous. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I love 
you drawing attention to the kind of weird sort of mishmash of the occult and then this, this most banal ordinary workplace drama or workplace dynamics. And, you know, brutalist architecture from one perspective is perhaps the most boring architecture you can get sort of big slabs of concrete that, you know, were poured out in the fifties and sixties, especially in sort of UK housing projects, among other things, all this post-World War II reconstruction. And somehow this game makes it not just interesting, but it makes even this sort of what could be boring, even more interesting. And, you know, part of that has to do with the fact that the concrete rearranges itself and the building rearranges itself as you find checkpoints. That doesn't hurt. Uh, some of it has to do with all of these documents, which the game is filled with documents that you can find with references to their other games, uh, with references to all kinds of urban folklore, uh, all kinds of occult mysteries that'll probably, you know, ring a bell in your head, MK Ultra illusions, things like that. MK Ultra being the kind of CAA project to experiment with the paranormal with telekinesis and uh, a number of other sort of things. Um, and I think what I liked about what you were saying, John, is yeah, you, you could pass that by. You can play this game as a standard third person shooter and you'll enjoy it, I would guess, but you're going to miss a lot. You're going to miss a lot of, I think, what makes it distinct. And for me, one of the few games, and it, it's not a third person shooter, it's a first person game, uh, an immersive sim that, you know, I think captures the same sense of a setting in recent years is a Arcane Studios game Prey which is also filled with documents about workplace drama and also has a kind of, you know, it's more science fiction, but a still what should be a presumably ordinary space station that has been taken over by some kind of force. And so, yeah. How do people feel, by the way, about the shooting, since this is maybe the primary verb in the game besides reading and looking? Yeah, it's, uh, I feel like what, for me, the, the shooting is less exciting than some of the other mechanics. So um, you, you can basically fly, sort of. You can levitate. You can jump and float and go very high and then move around in all sorts of fun ways. And you can, uh, I forget the launch is the name for the mechanic, right? You can grab whatever's out there and throw it at your enemies. And so as much as, you know, the, the architectural spaces of the game are, are great to be in, it's also great to destroy them. Uh, and they destroy very well <laughs> lots of things that you can pick up and throw at your enemies. Um, and, you know, that combined with uh, the, the shooting mechanics, I think uh, creates a, a pretty uh, varied and enjoyable experience. The, the other thing I'd say about the, the shooting is that um, you don't have a lot of variety in terms of weapons as far as, you know, if you're comparing it to other, um, other shooting games, uh, I think it's what, like five different weapons. Um, and there, there's even with between those five, the, the differences with some of them are not uh, all that significant. Um, but I think it's it doesn't really matter because that's not where you get the variety 
Um, it's it's from all the different ways that you can move through the space, interact with basically every object that's around you, um, and that that ends up being pretty pretty enjoyable. I, I love just like floating and zooming or whatever the uh, the burst thing is to move quickly through the air. Um, and then, yeah, just like picking up stuff and throwing it, it, it becomes this kind of chaotic, playful mess of combat. No, I, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I played this right on the heels of uh, Doom Eternal, which I think is, uh, especially for um, a kid who grew up in the 90s, that was Doom Eternal is my sort of platonic ideal of what I want from a shooter. I, I Call of Duty was never my jam. I want fast paced, just go, go, go. And Doom Eternal was that for me. This game had elements I really enjoyed, but I think Brian is right. The variety comes once you get the additional, um, what do they call them in the game? They're not the, the various powers you unlock. The various powers you unlock are, are the variety. The service weapon I really wanted more from. And I experimented briefly with each of the different forms of the service weapon. I enjoyed the service weapon visually. I enjoyed how it changed to be the sort of er gun of the game. Um, and I think from a storytelling perspective, the service uh, weapon works great. But I agree, it, it just didn't have enough variety in terms of shooting, especially as the, the really the singular um, uh, play element outside of the powers. And I, yeah, I, I experimented with the other with the other forms and then just immediately went back to the default um, outside of very specific instances where I would switch to the shotgun for the flying enemies almost exclusively. Um, I also felt that switching between the forms was really clunky. Um, navigating that particular menu um, and really all of the mods and the engagement with the service weapon I thought was... Uh, a real weakness of the game overall. Uh, the thing I hate most of the game is when you get uh, something that alters your play style like 3% or 2%. Like this is not enough of, uh, mathematically, this is not going to set my heart aflame. Like you got to give me 25% minimum or I'm not going to care or engage with it. And there was a, just a lot of like, maybe one day you'll get a really powerful mod but that just means I'm never doing this and I'm just going to never upgrade it and I'll just grind out through skill or chance. Um, so I really liked the powers, but yeah, the, the, the service weapon, while really cool, I don't think ever truly fulfilled uh, the potential that it has in terms of the, of the story, especially uh, some of the inferences that other characters make to what the service weapon actually is. Yeah, because it's this gun that basically shapeshifts into different forms. And so that's your, instead of having like five different weapons, you have one weapon that can take these different forms and you get the forms, you know, and basically you can upgrade them at checkpoints. But you're right. I did feel it, it felt a little bit like you were getting nickeled and dimed with the upgrades and the various mods you were getting. And, you know, you get a lot of them, which means you have to manage them and you have to go through and delete the ones. And at a certain point, you know, I realized, okay, I can order these according to rank. And, I'll, you know, as I got further into the game, I was like, okay, anything that's like rank one, two, or three, I'm just going to immediately delete without even looking at it. And I'll, you know, rank four, five, six, or whatever, which I think they have funny names like Absolute and Eternal. 
um, very video gamey names. Uh, yeah, and those I would take a look at. And since it's a spoiler cast, I'm going to say it. The service weapon. It's implied that it is this mythical weapon that it that it was Excalibur. It was yeah. Mjolnir. It was Julius Caesar's Gladius, and that's super cool. But like, I can't imagine like Julius Caesar like min maxing his Gladius. Like, oh, I got to manage all these <laughs> Gladius mods. Like, like Thor sitting down. Like, okay, let me do a hierarchy of my Excel spreadsheet for Mjolnir. Um, like, oh, yeah, you don't just, remember the scene from Endgame where Thor was playing Fortnite? Right. Uh, I, I do. And uh, I feel like he <laughs> wouldn't deal with those kind of mods either. Uh, yeah. No, it, it's it, They give you something like, this is the coolest thing ever. And then they make you do spreadsheets. Yeah. No, I will I, say, I, though, yeah. it's, of course, it's appropriate that you have to do all this information management in this, you know, Federal Bureau of Control atmosphere you're occupying but also i mean it's i don't think they do too much with that connection it's just like all games basically like you have to manage your your databases <laughs> that's kind of the essence of contemporary gaming um so yeah but it's i i love john your point that <laughs> if, if this is like the ultimate weapon it's kind of ridiculous that you have to think about like all right which mods are really going to bring us over the top yeah no i mean that, that this is why the powers feel so much cooler and yeah. you know frankly you can get launched to a point where it's overpowered you know where you're just like ripping things left and right throwing the enemies that you've just killed you can get it so you can throw three things at once and really you can just kind of destroy the game that way in a way that that works like it doesn't feel like you've ruined your enjoyment. At least it didn't for me, even though I did feel like there was a certain point where I had launched almost a little bit too powerful, but I would still combine it with the service weapon and I would dodge around, I would levitate. Um, which by the way, my theory of why this game can sometimes be difficult is that it's a cover shooter that basically tells you not to get under cover. Like there's a moment where you have that first boss fight uh, in the mail room where it's like, don't forget to use cover. And then a third of the game later, you get levitate. And who the hell wants to get into cover when you have levitate? You know, you just basically leave yourself exposed, which makes it, and it's really easy to die in this game pretty quickly. Um, so Especially once the sniper enemies come in and oh. then we'll just peg you out of sight. Uh, I, I think I'll get to that later, but yeah, there, there's, an entire, there's an entire sequence where I almost just put it down. I'm like, I don't care. I'll read the wiki. I'm done. I'm done with yeah. these guys. Is, is this near the end of the game? Uh, no, it's actually in the parapsychology uh, mm. department. I I missed the original critical path uh, and I ended up in the like the lower section where they have like the exploding wall barnacles. I don't know what they're called, but I, I was the convinced guy. that that was the critical path. And I think I know I'm not supposed to go to that until later. And I just was getting pegged with snipers for about an hour before I realized this is not the place to go. In my first playthrough, so there's this entire very actually detailed side story, maybe the most detailed side story, to the point where it made me wonder if it originally was supposed to be Critical Path and they kind of revised it and split it off into a side story. But you meet uh, a Dr. Underhill, uh, you know, aptly named again and you're basically charged with dealing with this mold that has spread through uh 
the Federal Bureau of Control. And you're right, they have these snipers, these like, basically I think they're sniping you with spores if I'm understanding yeah. it correctly. But those things take like half of your health early on in the game per shot and they'll kill you. If you have even a little health gone, they'll kill you in an instant. And it is easy to, because it's in the research center and the research center you do go to pretty early on in the game. But if you then kind of try to follow that side quest because it's right there, it's really easy to just end up running up against the wall, basically. That's exactly where, um, yeah, I, I hadn't upgraded my health at all. So it was, it was one shot, one kill um, in a dark, moldy cavern. Yeah, it wasn't great. Yeah. So one, I think another place where there are kind of difficulty spikes, but I actually ended up, in my first playthrough, I was sort of iffy on it, but in my second playthrough, I really liked it. And maybe that's just because I had more experience with the bosses, so I didn't end up hitting my head against the wall quite as much. But the you get these objects of power that you have to contain. And I should say another very clear reference point for the game is the uh, well-known website uh, SCP Foundation, uh, Secure Contain Protect Foundation, where people do these wikis for these mystical or arcane or occult objects. Uh, that they're clearly riffing on with a lot of the lore documents. But you're basically, you have these instances, including with this refrigerator, for example, where you're charged with containing an object of power. And then actually what that means is somehow you go into the object, which means a boss fight. And some of these boss fights are pretty hard until you figure out, okay, here's what I need to do. There's a boss fight. The boss fight against the refrigerator, honestly, I... I I still hate because the refrigerator takes out holes in the ground you're in. And if you fall through any of the holes, you die instantly. And, you know, this is not a game that throws you right back into the boss fight immediately. You have to go back to the boss and that can drive you a little crazy. I will say, I, I agree with you, uh, John, that this is not the most parent friendly game in the checkpoint system that it uses, which they've said is inspired by Dark Souls. Um, I, I, I like this better than I like Dark Souls um, as somebody who's been playing it recently. Uh, but I see what they're saying. There's a very Souls-like level design to this game um, in the kind of organic unity and the cohesion of the level design in the way in which if you really wanted to, you could kind of like draw a map without using the game map uh, of the levels and probably get it pretty close to right with the exception of a few areas. But yeah, yeah. What did folks think of the level design? Well, you mentioned uh, the the map. Uh, the <laughs> the map's so, bad. It's I hate the map. <laughs> oh man. So there, <laughs> a lot of the navigating you you have to do by following signs in the building, which um, you know at times is fine. Uh, but if you're like <laughs> surrounded by a bunch of enemies and you're trying to just like quickly get away and you don't know where you're going, you don't really have time to <laughs> try and read the signs. So that's one issue. But yeah, the map is basically almost entirely useless. Um, but again, I think it's like uh, a sort of knowing thing that they're doing here where you're in this building that changes form all the time and you're in this bureaucratic structure that's totally confusing and meant to befuddle 
Um, and so it makes sense that like, it wouldn't actually be easy for you to just figure out how to get to, you know, where you're trying to go for this mission um, or, you know, how to get back to uh, a checkpoint and stuff like that. So, so the, I think that uh, it, there is really a fine balance between the uh, how much you're, you're sort of lost in these complicated spaces you're trying to navigate um, as a sort of, uh, you know, aesthetic thing that, that makes sense in the context of the game, uh, like balancing that with also just being able to move through the game and <laughs> do what you're trying to do. So I think they, they do the balance pretty well for the most part. And, you know, it, it's, the game's not entirely linear, right? Like you can move between different areas, do different quests at different times, um, but with, with some limitation. And then a lot of the time you are guided pretty clearly and effectively like, all right, this is the path you need to, <laughs> to follow now. Um, and yeah, I mean, for a game that like has shifting buildings and stuff that's moving around all the time, uh, it's, it's a pretty impressive feat to, um, to be able to combine that like freedom of movement with the the sort of more traditional linear paths yeah yeah the map is i, I went back and forth on it i felt like okay it's a, it could be a story element like here's a map it is useless but they never make any sort of wink to the fact that it's useless i think that if you're going to provide something useless it should be it shouldn't insinuate that it is useful um <laughs> like either make it so useless that everyone's gonna you're not gonna waste your time on it you're gonna go haha okay or actually make it useful um and they did neither and so they provided you with uh a pretty prominent uh story tool that is meaningless it's it's like the the one tool on the swiss army knife that you have no idea what it's for it's like a you know, a leather punch? What am I going to use a leather punch? Um, and it just, it upsets you that it's so prominently featured on, like, you don't have to go to a menu. It's hotkeyed right there, the up yeah. D-pad. Uh, yeah, I hated it. And to the point of being inspired by Dark Souls, I could see, I could definitely see where they're coming from. But the, the difference, I think, and I think the reason it's a failure and unfriendly to gaming as a parent or just otherwise is dark souls has this musicality to it where it, there's a predictability to dark souls that if you go to an area and if you do this do the same thing every time you will get the same reaction from the enemies as opposed to um respawns are not entirely random but you're going to get a real different hodgepodge of enemies if you die so there's no rhythm that you can establish there's no expectations you can have you can go into a room meet five enemies, kill them, no problem. Then go in the next time, have five completely different enemies that murder you immediately. It's very difficult to establish that sort of base rhythm that works really well with Dark Souls because it's like learning a song and you just learn that song until you get to the boss and then you learn the boss, the chorus version of the song. Whereas this, it's just chaos and then you get to a a semi-predictable boss element and that run up that boss run especially on some of the harder bosses is 
Um, it almost broke me a couple times if I'm going to be really honest. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see what you're saying. There is a kind of chaos to it. And, and I think it's worth noting too, you know, my guess is that they probably maybe didn't want to put a map in and they decided to because otherwise they wouldn't have put so much work into the signs. But they did patch a better map in that's still bad. So I remember because I remember they patched a new map in very shortly after I beat the game the first time. And I was a little annoyed by that. Um, and then played it this time and I was like, okay, it's going to be a better map. And I was like, this still kind of sucks. Uh, <laughs> I want to see the old map because this one I opened. I was like, "This is never gonna fly." I'm just never bothering yeah. with this again. Well, one of the problems with the old map uh, is that it took forever to load as well, right? Like it actually had this like glitchy loading that where it would like take 30 seconds to load when you press the up key uh, on your D-pad, and then it would sometimes not even load all the details, and and so you have spent like 30 seconds waiting for the map to load and it still would be even less useless or useful than it usually is. I think the, honestly, the only map in a game that I've ever seen that's this kind of bad uh, is Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which I played for like 10 hours, which, you know, I think it's like a 200 hour game. And that map is a pure nightmare. Um, this one is chaos, but th that is interesting. So one of the things we might talk about is I think an odd design choice in the game to have these sort of periodic alerts that you can go do these like weird side things that just involve respawning enemies. Um, the point where I wonder if they were thinking about having this game have a longer tail than maybe it actually ended up having by what I, by which I mean that there are elements in this game from about a third in where you get these alerts where you can go kill Hiss in a place you've already been, or maybe I think it's only places you've already been that it gives you alerts for. But it almost feels like they were toying around with live service elements and maybe they were gonna throw in like a co-op thing or something at some point. And even when I remember when they were rolling out their DLC plans and their calendar for it, which of course like most DLC does gets delayed, it seemed like the initial calendar suggested something much more grand in scale and then they just kind of scaled it back scaled it back to produce these two i think really just like two four-hour dlcs which is perfectly fine but i do wonder if they had kind of different levels of what they were maybe expecting this game to be and then kind of part it down depending maybe on sales numbers maybe they just got to a point where they needed to ship i don't know yeah it felt like filler and really obvious filler um and I never bothered to engage with it. If, if I didn't have to do it in terms of engaging with the hiss, I just didn't. Yeah. Yeah, because for you, and I think this is maybe what all of us are saying, like the interesting parts of this game are not the, the bang, bang, shoot, shoot parts, right? The interesting part of this game, well, yeah, the powers and some of the combat's fun, but the best stuff are like documents you find in desk drawers, weird little architectural details. My you know, favorite place in the entire game just aesthetically is the basically the mining area, the quarry where they're mining this black rock that they're using to make, I don't know, some kinds of technologies and weapons and protective devices, uh, as well as containment devices for objects of power. But you go there and you see the starry sky 
within the building, right? Like you're, it's very much a Lovecraftian abyss set inside of a building where you're seeing out into like the heavens, but the heavens are very eerie and ominous. And in fact, uh, I will say actually my favorite piece of DLC that I've played so far that I think they added for free to the game um, for anybody that had purchased it was these basically kind of like roguelike uh, levels that you could get by getting these jukebox tokens and you put it into a jukebox and you're transported to this place where you have these combat encounters that are actually pretty cool, um, but that are set in these floating platforms in that starry abyss. Uh, and you go through the quarry the first time to get there. So it does feel like there's filler, but it feels like, interestingly, that filler is a kind of compromise between, well, we have to make sure we have the traditional elements of a third-person action game, but the good stuff are all the other things, right? And that's where I think the game distinguishes itself. Absolutely. Now, do you see this as like more third-person action or it felt really, and I, we have this in our outline, not to show behind, behind the curtain, but you have Metroidvania written down here. And I, within 10 minutes, I was like, if this game goes upside down, I'm all for it. Let's let's flip the oldest building upside down, do the whole thing again. Right. Um, it I absolutely felt this was a Metroidvania, and I don't know if how the rest of you feel about that, but um, it felt both in terms of the it it felt not only in terms of the design element, but in terms of the overall loneliness and the protagonist and the content. It felt. Um, it felt like one of the truest, I think, uh, expressions of a 3D or a, a, a third-person Metroidvania. No, I agree. It might not have as much level gating as some of, like, a, say, a Super Metroid, but there is some level gating. There are places you can't go without Levitate. There are bosses you can't fight without it. Uh, with the fungi or bold stuff, you have to eventually get like Dr. Underhill to give you some kind of shot based on things you've collected to get to the final boss encounter there as well. So there are these ways in which it's level gated in a way very similar to like a Metroid or a Symphony of the Night. But I mean, and that for me is like, you know, pure bliss, the 8-bit, you know, first Metroid, first time playing Samus was like the game that made me love video games. Um, when I was a kid, it was like, you know, that and the first Zelda, but I think it was really Metroid because there was something about the eeriness of it that I think you're right. This has that kind of like solitary character dealing with something eerie, becomes a badass as you go, like opens, you know, up different corridors to get to places. You get devices or tools or powers that open up places. Um, and yeah, I think they could have flipped it upside down. And they have moments where they almost sort of do that, right? There's a way in which Levitate does sort of flip the game upside down in terms of the way you experience or interact with the different rooms and corridors and whatnot. Mm -hmm. You know, but there is also, I mean, there is also kind of like traditional third person action. Uh, they've been working with the same engine uh, with Quantum Break. I think this is a different game engine than what they use for Alan Wake, but it's obviously pretty similar. Um, it's a, called their Northlight engine and it's proprietary. 
uh, and you know destructibility and uh, live cinematic capture are sort of their two main selling points for this engine, which I think they started the license. Uh, but there's something about this engine that is also just like, okay, third person action is the default, but we can do more with it. Yeah. So maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the influences and context behind this game. And I'll say, you know, reading some of the interviews and I had listened to some interviews actually that I wasn't able to find with Brooke Maggs, um, who was the narrative, the, the head narrative designer for the game. She's an Australian writer. Uh, she's done a bunch of great games, uh, notably Florence, the mobile game uh, about a relationship that I think everybody should play. It's just a couple hours long. Uh, I want to say maybe Donut County she wrote for, but she's done some really interesting games. And then of course the infamous or famous uh, Sam Lake, who uh, has been with Remedy since their first game, Death Rally, uh, and has been kind of their head writer and creative director uh, through Alan Wake, through uh, Quantum Break, through Control. And he notably also gave his face uh, his likeness to uh, Max Payne in the first two Max Payne games. Uh, it's actually uh, Sam Lake's face. He's a very, very pretty man. So it makes sense that they just went with it um, in the right. way that a Finn can be, you know. Uh, but he he talks about uh, how he had read Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation and I think saw... Uh, Alex Garland's adaptation uh, and I think it was actually he read the book and then started working on the script for this game and then uh, Brooke Mags got involved very explicitly to make a quote-unquote new weird game right and new weird is this sort of rejuvenation of kind of a Lovecraftian tradition of supernatural horror which dispenses with a lot of the racism and also kind of modernizes the weird in it. Um, uh, hopefully the senses with all of it though, you know, I don't know if you can totally get rid of it. Um, but yeah, what do you guys think about some of the influences of the game? We mentioned Twin Peaks, we've talked about noir a little bit, but yeah, what, did, what stuff to you guys? Yeah, the, uh, the Vandermeer connection for sure um, was uh, something that I, I don't think I, I knew that there was that direct influence where like they were the that Sam Lake is reading Vandermeer but just playing it I mean uh the the oldest house as a space um uh connects pretty effectively with um uh Annihilation and the the Southern Reach trilogy with this strange uh shifting structure that uh has all sorts of weird writing on it that transforms and um yeah so that that kind of uh uh eerie strange architectural uh imagination uh made a lot of sense as a an influence and I think actually another thing that uh, I was thinking about with the Vandermeer connection is I think um, he actually has this this fun sort of sense of humor in his weirdness as well. Not so much in the Southern Reach trilogy, but in uh, his his book since then, um, Born and uh, 
uh, a, a short little book called The Strange Bird that's set in the same universe as Born, which is really just an amazing book. Uh, but there, and then um, his uh, most recent one is uh, Dead Astronauts, which is right. also in that same universe. Uh, there's this, this um, playfulness along with the eerie and the weird and the horrific uh, that I just, I find really compelling in, in his work. And I think you, you see some of that in control as well. Um, but yeah, did, did we, I feel like new weird is, is kind of a difficult thing to define precisely. Like it feels like one of those genres, I guess genres are, are always like this, um, but it's, uh, it's like, uh, at times it feels like it could encompass basically anything. Uh, like lots of stuff could easily fall under new weird depending on how you're defining it. Um, but do we, do we know, like, is there a sort of a, an agreed upon definition of what constitutes new weird at this point? I mean, I don't know that... oh, go, go ahead, ahead, John. You uh, I, I don't know that there is a sort of I think the whole point of the new weird is that it it, it does I reject a lot of uh, genre defi definitions, um, both gleefully and um, sort of as a, as a wink to the fact that, uh, especially science fiction, horror, and fantasy have, uh, were kind of shunted off into sort of lowbrow or midbrow um, media. But uh, I would say that it encompasses it can come from any of those three core genres. It can come from science fiction. It can come from fantasy. It can come from a horror element, but I do think that all of them have at least some element of existentialism to them that it, it's, it's not going to, uh, the MacGuffin is not going to be the friends we made <laughs> along the way. There's always an element of the unknowable. There's an element of the ineffable and, uh, I think, yeah, there is they the where the original weird, like Christian said, has sort of the horror and the science fiction and the fantasy slammed into uh, an unhealthy dose of well, not that there's ever a healthy dose of racism, but just that big dollop of racism. Uh, the new weird doesn't ignore that, but does um, at least acknowledge that that is um, a lot of times. Uh, the, the roots from which this tree grew and engages yeah. with it in some way. And uh, uh, often as a core element, if not as an ancillary. And then also, yeah, it has the humor of, man, we are, we are really dedicating our, uh, our artistic output to something that most people have uh, really pushed off to the periphery of the artistic scene, especially considering, I, I, I would think that the new weird probably came into the lexicon around 2000, 2001. The first yeah, time I heard of right. it was right around uh, Perdido Street Station by China Mayville yep. is where I became aware of it. Um, I am not hip or with it. So I'm sure that that was probably floating around uh, four to five years before that. But I think- You were on the wrong message boards, I guess. I'm never on the Which right message boards. definitely means you're not hip or with it. I, I was a dad <laughs> before I ever met my child. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know that it has a, a firm definition, but I think that it doesn't want one. 
Well, let me give you, I can give you Vandermeer's definition because I oh, actually think it more or less confirms. So I'm writing a book in part on this, uh, like a little side project book on like the natural history of the weird on like natural history and biology and weird fiction. And so I, you know, I rummage around the internet and find these things and anthologies and stuff. And Jeff Vandermeer's has spent as much time collecting pieces for anthologies as he has actually writing his own work. Interestingly, he's a great editor. Uh, but he has a collection or a volume called New Weird or The New Weird that he edited with his uh, partner and Vandermeer. Uh, and he, here's his definition, which actually think more or less confirms the undefinability of it. Uh, he says, New Weird is a type of urban secondary world fiction that subverts the romanticized ideas about place found in traditional fantasy, largely by choosing realistic, complex, real world models as the jumping off points uh, for creations of settings that may combine elements of both science fiction and fantasy. That may is giving a lot of leeway there. Uh, <laughs> New Weird has a visceral in the moment quality that often uses elements of surreal or transgressive horror for its tone, style, and effects. New Weird fictions are acutely aware of the modern world, even if in disguise, but not always overtly political. As part of this awareness of the modern world, New Weird relies for its visionary power on a surrender to the weird that isn't, for example, hermetically sealed in a haunted house on the moors or in a cave in Antarctica. Yeah, that makes sense when you read Vandermeer's fiction, even most of medieval's fiction and some of the other folks that travel in those circles. But on the other hand, I feel like I could slap that onto a Stephen King novel or two uh, and a lot of others. The, the one thing that I do want to sort of draw attention to and that we kind of rotated around or orbited around is, you know, that transition from weird fiction that's probably most epitomized by H.P. Lovecraft, but also includes for folks like Ashton Clark Smith and a lot of other 19th century writers, maybe even going back to Poe, depending on how you read Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, but there was this reliance on racism and misogyny and homophobia as a way of dealing with otherness, right? Like every Lovecraft story has this point where something alien or anomalous or supernatural is encountered. And the way that it's often dealt with is through some kind of fear of foreignness, right? But at the same time, what was interesting about Lovecraft is his characters were also attracted to it. So that you would get, for example, in uh, you know, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, you would get the character that the end of the novella decides to become this fish creature that decides to give in to the supernatural. You always get this moment of seduction. Uh, and in the best Lovecraft, right, the character sort of gives into it and overcomes a certain kind of racist element, though it's still there. Um, I mean, this is a guy that named his cat the N-word. Uh, and Vandermeer, what he does is he really just highlights that seduction. Like, you know, spoilers for the novel Annihilation, which skip for like 30 seconds if you haven't read it because you absolutely should read the novel. Uh, one of the best things I think that's been written in 20 years, to be honest, uh, at least by an American author. Um, but you know, the end of that novel is the main character who's just the biologist uh, giving herself over to her natural environment and deciding that she'd rather just be part of the anomaly, part of the Southern Reach, part of Area X, rather than escape from it. And that sense of becoming part of the strange thing instead of escaping from it is captured so well in Control. Right, it's captured so well here. I think that's what makes it new weird is you encounter the weird, you get seduced by it, but it's actually okay. Like you become something else. And, you know, in a lot of Vandermeer's, you know, recent fiction, which I 
you know, I'm right there with Brian with saying, you know, Born is a brilliant, funny novel. Uh, B-O-R-N-E for folks looking for it. Um, but with a lot of it, it, you know, he seems to be grappling with climate change or the Anthropocene and basically the sense that like, we can't avoid this, right? Like, just like you can't avoid and shouldn't want to avoid, you know, people of other cultures, of other races, of other sexualities, right? Like difference is something that is attractive and that shouldn't just be exoticized, that shouldn't just be quote unquote weird, that you should actually just kind of own and become part of in a way. And I love the way this game does that. Yeah, I think one of the things that um, this game, like I said earlier, this game understands the source material really well. It doesn't just play at knowing the source material or refer or have f- empty references. Um, uh, Myville, May- Mayville, I do not know how to pronounce China's last name, but uh, effectively, but one of the things he does, and I think one of the things that Jeff Vandermeer does, especially in his earlier work, is whereas the original weird would present a normal situation and then slowly dose out weird elements to it, making it feel alien, they give you something that starts alien and they normalize that. And then the weird comes after that. You would expect, oh, the weird is obviously the oldest house or this uh, omnipresent, omnipotent, Finnish janitor but those are not the weird elements you don't get the weird elements until Ati's already been normalized by everyone around him like oh that's Ati yeah he's just the teleporting Finnish janitor who knows all of our names and everything that's ever happened sounds Um, like the Swedish chef exactly um the the thing about the new weird is yeah it it whereas I feel the old weird was about being corrupted by the by your surroundings and being made weird um, or ununderstandable. Um, the the new weird is about presenting something that should be ununderstandable um, and then making it weirder um, through fairly you know banal means whether that's here's a weird space in uh, Perdido Street Station. Here's something incredibly weird that is corrupted by really just the base means of greed and um, and uh, and lust, uh, or uh, which is similar to uh, City of Saints and Mad Men. Here's a mm-hmm. city that is um, built over an ancient mycological civilization and it all comes down to sexual desire is the thing that is actually um, infecting this space that weird is on its own not good or bad it's uh, the infection that the humans are bringing to the space um, right because the city city of madman that's uh that's like the city is also built on colonialism right yeah. like basically in genocide like it's a settler colonial sort of paradigm or terrible for that matter there I, I really like that john because i think you're right there's a kind of reverse temporality there where it's like you read lovecraft and you get corrupted by the weird like it leeches in like in the color of out of uh, color from out of space it's like a rock comes down and literally starts polluting the environment but here you're right away you get the weird janitor you get all this weird stuff the weird gun or service weapon uh and then it normalizes but then you realize that the normality itself is the weird thing right that the paperwork is in fact weird. Like I really want to write an essay and I've actually written a couple of paragraphs already for the site on like this game as an ode to bureaucracy 
or like a kind of in praise of bureaucracy, how interesting bureaucracy can be. Because in a way what this game does is say, here's this weird thing. Yeah, let's watch it become normal. Now here's all this bureaucratic paperwork and that's actually the weirdest part. So do, I'm guessing then you, you appreciate the segment uh, towards the end of the game where your, your quests are essentially uh, office work. The post, the first post credit sequence, right? Yeah. So you, this is great. You get a credit sequence and then you sort of reawake and you find out actually that you've been like sort of weirdly absorbed by the hiss for a moment later. But for the moment, it just seems like you have office tasks to do. And you're like the new person in the office, an intern or something. And you're just photocopying. You're photocopying, collecting coffee cups. And there's one other thing, um, delivering mail. And that's actually the most important one because you keep delivering mail to the director, the former director trench before you take over. And then you start realizing things are weird because of course, Adi is capable of infiltrating this kind of weird dream sequence and telling you, you've almost got there. Yeah, no, that that's a, I thought that was a brilliant piece. I mean, yeah, it's utterly yeah. boring, but it's right. brilliant in its boringness. I, I thought that was like the height of the game in a weird way. I wonder if you could actually just keep playing that sequence and like never stop and right I think because you could. the yeah, I mean you because you just keep delivering more things and gathering coffee cups and whatnot. Well, and because like, they you, replenish. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, so it'd be, I wonder if there's like a, I don't know, an experimental like art project that's just like control, that's that section of control being played on a loop constantly forever. If there's not, we should make it. Yeah, I was going to say next time I interview Jake Elliott uh, from Kentucky Route Zero, I'll mention it to him and see because he, they started off with doing art projects rather than games. Um, yeah, and I, I have to admit, Maybe it's a game that signposting went very well, or maybe it's I was like it was late at night when I think I got to this point the first time. Uh, but it took me a long time to realize what to do to break out of that loop because you have oh, to like, too. yeah, you know, you have to go find like I think it's like an intercom and it's not really flagged very well, and you can't pull up a maybe you can pull the map, but I don't remember. But like I did it. I spent like half an hour doing that instead of probably the necessary five minutes or something. <laughs> yeah. Highlight of the game. Paperwork. I think that's the right way to play that segment as just keep, keep doing the office work as long as you can. I should have just recorded myself and I could have been like the next Andy Warhol, you know, just recorded myself <laughs> doing it for 24 hours. <laughs> but I, there are little weird things in the game that, stand out even more than the big weird things like yes the house is shifting yes there is this janitor but i could just not get over every time i go into a room and there's an ashtray in a government building it's just here's this weird little anachronism and it they explain why there are some anachronisms like why there are analog phones and why there are antique computers and um uh radio as as the really the highest tech that there's, there's there but they the fact that there's other anachronisms that are unneeded, like it, it's not like you need to have cigarettes to operate a typewriter, but yet there are ashtrays and evidence that have people have been smoking in every room. Uh, the obsession with Western art, um, the sort of manifest destiny in the, in the art in every room. Um, there's just the little things that, make that weird that 
are, I think, my absolute, the thing that captured me the most. I love going into rooms and like, okay, here's what the actual feature piece is, which is the wall that is throbbing or, um, but then you go and it's like, mm, but the real weird thing is the fact that this projector is pointed at the ceiling uh, purposefully. Uh, they do a great job of that. And that I think is definitely, um, yeah, I just love it. I, I don't know that it ties to anything else. It's my love letter to the fact that they put all it, that they took a building out of the fifties pretended that it was a modern concern, but still decided to just be in the fifties because the rest of the government can't get to the astral plane. So we can still smoke there. Um, yeah, no, there's definitely something like a, like sort of palimpsest or like superimposed layers of history and time in this game, which I think becomes even clearer when you start reading some of the documents in the foundation DLC as well. Uh, but you're right, like there's a sense of the 50s being sort of superimposed upon, in fact, the 90s, I would say, because of the nods to Twin Peaks. Um, including with some of like the television shows, which maybe we should talk about the great like little television and video things that sometimes are projected on walls and sometimes you see on a television, including the inimitable, uh, you know, Dr. Casper Darling, which uh, like, man, when he does that music video where it's the end of the game, uh, which I think you find in the Ocean View Motel, uh, this kind of very Twins Peaksy sort of place that you transport to a handful of times in the game, you pull like a old style light cord that would be in the ceiling of a room three times and you get there and all the puzzles to sort of leave the motel and go to the next place in the game uh involve the rule of three uh very sort of you know well-known kind of occult uh numerology and which you do everything in threes and sort of imitate acts in threes and uh but you have this like you don't have a ton of npcs in this game but I feel like they're just as weird as like those room details that you're pointing out, uh, John. And they're also all getting seduced uh, by the hiss or by uh, the hedron, which turns out to be Polaris, which we haven't talked about, but is like the consciousness that is existing in Jesse Faden's head that she initially encountered, presumably in one of the universes that the projector took her to in her Wisconsin town of Ordinary. Right, she's got a hitchhiker that's in her head, basically. That seems to be a kind of guardian angel sort of figure. Um, yeah. yeah, no, no. It um, just as a quick aside, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in normal Illinois, uh, so ordinary Wisconsin uh, really struck home for me uh, as a lifelong Midwesterner. I uh, that's where I teach. I okay, you're in State. normal, perhaps, right now. Well, I'm actually in Colorado, but we can pretend I'm I'm in normal right now. I do. I have an apartment in normal, so I, Spiritually, I visit normal. <laughs> it is your astral plane, as, a, as that's a right. Um, but yeah, no, the it does a a great job in it of making Jesse feel weird and alienated but also yeah presenting these weird but also archetypal characters of the mad scientist the 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 emperor director the sort of mad king the the tragic brother figure um even uh 
again, when I say that they, they know their sources, uh, the a Polaris guiding Jesse is really a, a reminiscent of uh, Alistair Crowley said he met an otherworldly being named I, a wise uh, that helped him write the book of the law. Um, and that it was an external force that guided him through um, this turbulent uh, uh, spiritual experience for him. So they, 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 when they reference something, they call back to it a lot of times. Um, and just quickly going back to the new weird, I think that it also this game also has a lot to it owes a lot to both Alan Moore and Michael Moorcock. Um, uh, the Eternal Champion series uh, or genre that Moorcock Moorcock creates that is based on the conflicting order and chaos elements of the universe and a, and a champion that walks that line trying to balance those two forces. Uh, it really felt like Jesse was right there as that eternal champion trying to make sure that neither force overwhelms the other and leads to a total stagnation of reality. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And it's interesting because it doesn't feel like they're coded as quite good versus evil, which I think is one of the game's strengths. Is it, it never really... It doesn't even demonize the hiss. Like you're there to, I think this is one of the reasons why the shooting almost conceptually feels dissatisfying, though I don't know what else they could have done besides, and I actually would have still played this, made it a walking simulator, essentially. Uh, A la What Remains of Edith Finch or Gone Home or any number of games. Uh, Like, which I could have seen that working. It would have been a shorter game, perhaps. Um, But, you know, there's a way in which you're shooting at these things and they're not demons, they're not evil per se. They are otherworldly, they do seem destructive, but their destructiveness is kind of like the mold that you encounter, you know, that Dr. Underhill is obsessed with and doesn't even think is bad. And in fact, is angry with you for actually killing it. Uh, she wants samples, she doesn't want you to kill them. Uh, <laughs> there's a sense in this, like you're, you know, it's, it's that seduction again of the otherworldly. And I think Alan Moore is a good reference there too. Makes me think of some weird mashup of From Hell and Promethea or something. Um, in the way it does bring that archetypal sort of hero uh, or heroine together with, on the other hand, like the sense of Gothic mystery. Um, yeah, it, for it just felt like the Bureau of Control, and I interpreted the oldest house as the collective unconsciousness of humanity, or at least the collective unconsciousness of the United States, and that this sort of overwhelming, oppressive, brutalist, concrete organization was trying to inflict a shared reality. Um, We're going to take away the chaotic elements that might um, undermine the sort of hegemony of a single world government worldview. And the hiss is coming in and bringing in this very chaotic, but also like destructive. Uh, it it undermines the the not only the bureau of control but the concept of being able to control this space. Um, but in doing so, destroys the people that are engaging with it. Um, and yeah, like you said, it, it's not malevolent so much as it's destructive. It's like a a, a blizzard or a hurricane where it it is absolutely wiping away what humanity has created in front of it, but without real malice. Whereas the Bureau of Control is wiping away what it engages with in a very knowing and um, uh, strict way to the point where either one 
Uh, if the Bureau had its way, there's no magic, there's no whimsy, there's no, there's no strangeness in the world, um, and the world becomes gray and stagnant. Whereas if the hiss takes control, everything's just throbbing and red and stagnant because there's no meaning to be had outside of sort of madness and sort of cancerous growth. Right. Although even that's a question mark, right? Because you start reading these documents that accumulate in the boardroom and realize that they're maybe maybe they haven't figured it out, but there there seems to be something like meaning, if not in the traditional sense, that is coming from the hiss in some way, right? There are mm-hmm. these like resonances or frequencies they seem to be operating on. You know, just to maybe sort of call attention to some things we haven't mentioned yet that I think are notable in this game and see if you guys have any thoughts about it. Uh, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about that maybe sort of contextualizes us as well is that the sort of quest givers in this game, uh, besides uh, some of the kind of conventional human NPCs, are the board. And the board seems to be what the director is also responsible for reporting to, right? But the board is not governmental figures, uh, or other kinds of federal agencies, the board is some kind of strange supernatural entity that's kind of falling out with one of its members who is what's inhabited the refrigerator that you fight at one point and also reappears uh, in the foundation DLC actually, and might even help you in it if you do the right things. Uh, Hint, hint, uh, Brian. Uh, Thank you, thank you. uh, It makes a boss battle way easier if you do the right thing with that uh with a former (laughs) with a former board member but you get the sense of like there's a board that is opposed to this hiss but it feels more like they're trying to avoid a hostile takeover you know like a business trying to avoid a hostile takeover and you're never quite sure that the board is on the human sides just that they need humans to execute certain things for them and that they give humans just enough help so that they usually aren't being destroyed by objects of power or altered world events and I think that's fascinating. There's the Ocean View Motel that we mentioned. There's the astral plane, which is where the board exists. And you also pick up your new powers from the astral plane. Uh, so there's all these ways in which it complicates the space of the oldest house as well. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, go ahead. Brian. I was just going to say the, the board to this weird entity or entities that uh, give you orders, basically. Uh, that's another place where I feel like there's a lot of that whimsy and humor. Like you, you never know entirely what the board's deal is, and the the way that the board communicates is in this sort of uh, jumbled speech that you can't actually make out. And so you've got the the uh, subtitles to tell you what it's saying, but it's always in this very enigmatic way. So like it'll. Um, have uh, two or three different words separated by a, a backslash. And sometimes those those pairings are very humorous. So um, I'm trying to think of an example where it's like, they're, they're saying you are welcome, but then it's like, you are welcome slash grateful. And it, uh, you know, just these, these weird contrasts in uh, the way that, whatever is helping translate the board's strange sounds into meaning, uh, it, it leads to these little moments of, of odd, I mean, weirdness, but, but especially like playful weirdness. So I always enjoy interacting with the board, even though 
I don't really know what's going on with the board. Uh, it's amusing. And I think, yeah, no, I, I love that, that take. And it, it is amusing, but it is also, yeah, humorous in that because you now have to take the order, you have to have, you have been given an order, you don't have to do that order. And so no matter what you're doing, there is a degree of frustration, exasperation, there's all the human emotions you're bringing to it. And I, it just always made me feel the first interaction with the board was like Moses going to the burning bush and speaking with this otherworldly entity that in Western society we've interpreted as God. And, but it's literally like, okay, now you have to, like, now I have to move. I have to tell all my friends we have to move. Like we're moving now. And the exasperation of that when it's you is humorous because now you have been contacted by an otherworldly composite organism and you have to go do something annoying with that. And like the annoyance you have brought to it, like, oh, I've, I've spoken to the divine, but the divine has asked me to do a really annoying thing awesome like, like <laughs> there's no wisdom there it's just like here's another task i'm i'm just like any other order giver it's we're gonna give you a little bit just like i've given you the wisdom that i'm i'm here but um please go do this thing i need you i need you here at five tomorrow so um it's yeah it is yeah. confusing but also hilarious in the situation that it creates in the game and, and a lot of the references from the board are to the fact that you're playing a game. There's this right, really sort right. of like they call you player slash, you know, protagonist. And at various moments, they even speak about leveling up and defeating bosses and things like that. Uh, and so there's this way in which they're kind of like, you know, Sam Blake has given these interviews where he talks about being 18 and discovering postmodern American fiction uh, <laughs> and discovering yeah. like the novel, like, house of leaves and things like that and you can just see oh, yeah. like I you know you can got, see it yeah <laughs> you can see it this is like they're, these are postmodern games and he knows he's making these postmodern games and yeah. thankfully they're like postmodern games in a very specific like cohesive way but this is a game with plays with the fact that it's a game and i think one of the things i love about this game is that it doesn't feel the need to kind of ape the realism that's aspired towards by so many other AAA games. It's not about, I mean, they have great fidelity in this game in terms of the graphics, but that doesn't seem to be what the game's about. It's about like giving you these weird lore documents. It's about giving you strange powers, destructible environments and the like. Any, before we wrap up, any last thoughts about the game favorite moments that you want to get out there before we call it uh on a podcast well we mentioned the ashtray maids but we we didn't really explain it i that's like the probably the the most uh uh well-known moment of the game if if people have heard it like I feel like in reviews it was always like the thing that people said like oh this moment you're gonna love um and it is, it's brilliant. I mean, okay, they did uh, you love it, Brian? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, explain uh, to us what it is to make sure we remember. So, yeah. So the, basically you're, you're in this strange, uh, uh, maze that you get access to from Ati, 
and he gives you a, a cassette player, like a, you know, like a, a Walkman and you put on the headphones and there's this uh, uh, sort of hard rock song <laughs> that... <laughs> It's really bad music, the, except in that context. Right. Yes, exactly. Like, uh, so yeah, it's not a song I, I ever want to listen to again. But in that moment, as the soundtrack for not just you in the game, but Jesse in this maze that she's working through, um, it's just like this again, like really playful, clever, smart, knowing moment. Um, and that's actually, right, that's the thing that leads up to her when she says, that was awesome. <laughs> and, you know, if folks want to sort of like reference to what to think of or what the picture in their heads here, uh, I would say think of Dale Cooper from Twin Peaks running through the Black Lodge in a kind of right, like endless right. loop. And because actually, if you if you go there before you have the cassette player, you can get in, but you can't get anywhere. You just end up going in a loop and yeah. ending it back to the start. But when you have this Walkman and the music perfectly coordinates with it, you end up in this like shape-shifting hotel with like doors multiplying, halls elongating. And of course there are enemies to battle, but it's really about the architectural space shifting around you. You can tell that they put a lot of resource and time and thought into that experience. Yeah. I forgot, yeah, I, I went there without the headset and uh, spent a long time thinking <laughs> that I'd be able to do something in there. Yeah, uh, I but, out right. Instead, just kept like going through with these walls that disappeared and then came down and blocked my path. And yeah. So get the cassette and then go. It's much more enjoyable. Absolutely. They do try to, uh, without giving too much away, Brian, they do try to do something similar in the Foundation DLC with a oh, train. I oh, I, I already found the train. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't quite hit the same level, but there, but it has yeah. excitement to it. Um, the DLC definitely is definitely in playing. the same spirit. Yeah. 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 John, any last thoughts? Parting words? Yeah. My my last thoughts. I I just wanted to touch on the uh, the selection of the objects of power and the um, the the iconic uh, symbolic. Uh, objects that they chose, I think were really well curated to make, uh, to have really powerful emotions or images um, come through. Like the, the, the red nuclear telephone is a way to communicate with the board. Um, and just like going online and seeing what people have said about some of the objects where they had similar strong feelings or strong images pop up, but we're all vaguely different. Like I saw the jukebox and immediately went to like the Fonz in the fifties where like other people had very different takes on that. Um, but I thought that was a really, for a game that's all about the power of symbols and the power of archetypes and the power of um, images, they, they curated a, a really nice selection of images that were going to have visceral or, um, uh, strong subconscious reactions to without being, I think overly on the nose for the most part. And uh, uh, it's another thing that they don't really nod or wink to, uh, but it, I think that was maybe one of the heaviest, heavier tasks to lift is find a, a bunch of items that seem both normal, but iconic enough that people are gonna bring a lot um, in terms to the party to interpret and 
uh, spin out and actually bring their own uh, experiences to the party. Um, so yeah, that's just, those are great. They're, they're fabulous. I loved them. So my sort of final kind of like parting words here is I'll say two little things. One uh, is you find out that the director is really just the assistant to the janitor. The person in charge is actually just a janitor's assistant. And there's just something lovely about Ati being like, yes, you'll make a very good assistant, uh, <laughs> you know, at various points in the game. And this is supposed to be reassuring. And I think, you know, Jesse is a little bit of a flat character in some ways, I would say. Like she's not charismatic, but that was the moment where I was like, Oh, she's not supposed to be charismatic. It's good that she's not charismatic because her response is, eh, I've been a janitor before. That's fine. <laughs> right? She's got this kind of like working class quality that I really like about her. And it's like charming by not being charming, charming by being, well, ordinary. Uh, you know, it, and it, go for it, Jen. Oh, it, it, they did a good job of making where she says i've been a janitor before which makes sense for a runaway they didn't lean into i'm i'm a magical girl i ran away but now i'm a i'm a high powered banker in new york she's like no i was a janitor i've worked third shift like i'm i'm a person who ran away as a child and was traumatized and i ended up in a weird job so sure was okay sure you're 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 not weird you're reassuring yeah no it's and, and i mean that's like Exactly. She's not like the magical girl. She's just like ordinary. She stumbled into a situation, but she's not just ordinary. She's got Polaris with her. And so there's this nice sort of balance between special and ordinary that I think the game just does throughout. And I think another way you see this, and this is my last thing I say is there's also, you know, Remedy loves to insert other media objects in their game. I think part of the problem with Quantum Break that they were sort of rectifying here is that this is sort of long television shows that you have to just stop playing to watch, whereas this game gives you little television shows that you can watch. But it also gives you radio shows, which is something that they carry over from Alan Wake. And I believe that the radio show, in fact, in uh, Control is this one of the same radio shows that you can encounter in Alan Wake, uh, which is America Overnight. And it turns out that America Overnight is actually sort of like a propaganda tool for the Federal Bureau of Control, or not even a propaganda tool, it's an information collection tool. Because what they're doing is they're having people call in with weird things they've encountered. And of course, the Federal Bureau of Control follows up on it. So they're doing this like late night show where people are calling in with the weird things and then the Federal Bureau of Control is going out and investigating it. And there's something about like that level of detail. There's no reason they had to include those radio shows. There's no reason they had to include those narrative details, but it, it makes the Federal Bureau of Control feel like a place that could actually be there, like that you could stumble on in Manhattan if you took like, you know, the wrong turn somewhere. And so it was that, also, that, on, yeah. It was a nice little callback to Men in Black too, where Tommy Lee Jones goes to the National Enquirer and the Weekly World News to get his leads. Um, I was like, oh, okay, yeah. There's, yeah. there's, there is. That's, I think, Brian, where I realized, like, okay, they're actually trying to be very dry but funny. Yeah, definitely. All right, guys, Brian, John, thanks for doing the spoiler cast, and uh, let's talk soon. All right, thank, thank you. you, thank you, Christian. Wow.